This week on The Futurists, Casey Lobar. The historic record would say, no, no, every time we've automated jobs, we've created new ones. Yeah. And the question is, is this like it's always been or is something different now? My own instinct tells me something is different. Welcome back to yet another episode of The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and here's my co-host. Hey, Brett King. I'm here. Brett, in, it's in, good to in, see in, Yeah, I'm actually in North Carolina this week, So, um, but back to uh, Thailand the uh, end of next week. Globetrotter. Yeah, good to have you back. Good to be back with you this time. Uh, we've both been traveling quite a bit. And man, the future keeps coming. Uh, there's been a tremendous flood of news and information and so forth. One of the things that we've been eager to do, though, uh, now that we're both back on the show together, is interview a real futurist, somebody who is spending their career thinking a about career these futurist. Yeah, that's career exactly futurist. right. A yeah. professional futurist, if you will. And uh, and so we reached out to a longtime acquaintance of mine and uh, at a company that everybody's going to be familiar with. Let's give a big welcome to Casey Lobaugh. Casey, hi. Hey, Robert. How hey, Casey. Thank oh, hey, Brett. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Happy to have you here. So, Brett, Casey is the chief futurist uh, for the con- consumer industry, which he's going to explain what that means, uh, for the firm Deloitte Consulting. And uh, for those well, who aren't aware- I'm from uh, Deloitte Consulting. Oh, so. I didn't. Oh, that's cool. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I was, uh, I, I had it. I was director of e-business out in Asia Pacific during the dot-com era for Deloitte. Um, originally started with Deloitte in Australia, then they, they moved me to the Hong Kong office, which was the headquarters for Asia at the time. Um, but of course, back in those days, uh, you know, it was all very industry focused. So um, that's, you know, I had to choose an industry. So I chose financial services, of course. Right. That's right. Well, that's a good setup for this conversation because Casey is focused. He's, he's the futurist for the consumer industry. And I was a little unclear exactly what that means. So, so Casey, tell us a little bit about the consumer industry and what it means to be a futurist there. Yeah, excellent, Robert. And first of all, Brett, I, I love the fact that you're an alumni at Deloitte. We have uh, alumni everywhere. Uh, and of course, um, I really always appreciate meeting people. You and I were catching up a little bit on our parallel paths from back in the day. But nonetheless, um, the consumer industry for us, you know, we think about it like this, is that, um, you know, the consumer, you know, has... Uh, their wallets divided two ways. You've got your non-discretionary spending, uh, and then you've got discretionary spending. And discretionary spending really is a broad collection of dollars that are spent by the consumer on everything from autos to hotels, restaurants, uh, retail, consumer packaged goods, uh, and I'm sure I'm leaving other categories out here: convenience stores, supermarkets, etc. You know, all of that for us falls into what we call the consumer industry because the same forces that are are guiding the economics of the consumer and their decisions and their lifestyle really affect all of those categories. And so we think really broadly about how the consumer may be changing about how they're interacting with those categories, spending money differently, uh, you know, evolving over time. So that's how we get to this this idea of the consumer industry. Okay, so it's way broader than I had imagined when I first heard about this. Um, But you leave a couple categories out. So it doesn't include spending on energy. Does it include things like mortgages or is that outside of that as well? That that would be outside. So we've got financial services uh, that would be a separate industry for us, or at least the way we think about it, though there is relationship. And we certainly spend a lot of time talking about the relationships. Uh, You know, one of the industries that would be separate would be healthcare. However, you'll hear me talk about this today about the convergence of these industries and where consumer and healthcare are coming together. Um, And energy, while we wouldn't 
put the energy companies in the consumer category. Certainly, the the venues through which we're selling energy to the consumer are in the, you know are within the purview of the consumer category. So, for example, a convenience store uh, would absolutely be considered a consumer industry uh, company for us. That's a good illustration of convergence because just about every gas station now seems to have a little mini market attached to it. And so you, that's a good, a tiny micro example of this kind of convergence you're describing where the, the boundaries are being blurred uh, between right. you know consuming energy and consuming uh, a you know, candy bar or a can of soda. Um, but basically, so you're focused on, on discretionary spending in the home. Um, but one thing that blurs those categories is also that people are cutting back on non-discretionary. You know, for instance, healthcare is an example. As the cost of that continues to go up, people are trying to find ways to yeah. uh, maybe cut back on that so that they can go buy a new iPhone or something else. Yeah, and even uh, even as we talk yeah, about that, you know, why oh, why why waste your money on insulin? Seriously, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> crazy, right? They're crazy that we have to make those decisions in this day and age. But yeah, that's right. It's right, and you you can't focus on just the non-discretion or just the discretionary portion of the wallet without recognizing the changes that are happening on the non-discretionary side. Yeah, yeah, because the big macro change is that the price of everything is going up. I know the the, the inflation story is not new, um, but you know, really the inflation story goes way back to 2008. We've seen inflation yes. in asset prices that's you know, for more than a decade. Um, and as a result, you know, the cost of housing has gone up. Um, we're also seeing a kind of steady rise in the price of automobiles as people switch to EVs. Those cost something something like 20, 25% more than a than an internal combustion car. So uh, costs are rising across the board. How are consumers reacting to that? Actually, well, let me address this question about costs are rising across the board because you, you did exactly what we've done is sort of go back over a longer range and think about because of course everybody wants to talk about inflation today but if you yeah. go back all the way back to 2000 you you'll find that there's two distinct categories roughly divided between non-discretionary and discretionary what you'll find is categories like hospital services college tuition college textbooks medical services child and nursery school care all of those have been on an incredibly strong inflationary tear much yeah. longer horizon than you know, the, the inflation pressure that we're talking about now. Now, yeah. conversely, though, if you looked at TVs, toys, computer software, computer services, cell phone services, even clothing, uh, you'll find that there's been an incredible deflationary pressure yeah. for quite some time. And even when you put it in the context of the recent inflation, you'll still see that over that time period, we're having incredible deflation. Even uh, just as this week, as the new inflation report came out, you see the same exact division yeah. showing up in the inflation report that we get even over this week. So you have to recognize this back to this comment about like, the more we inflate costs on the non-discretionary side that actually steals from the discretionary wallet and you know that's part of the question of the future is has something well, structurally know, changed it's or even, not it's even more um you know like i don't know straightforward than that which is you know real wage growth has been absent in the us and and uk you know, in Australian economies, uh, you know, to name a few, for 40 years, effectively, right. you know, real wage growth has stagnated. So, um, you know, with more and more automation coming in, there's going to be more and more pressure on uh, wage growth, um, you know, and, and corporations are going to be making a decision to jump in with, you know, a AI in, in, in preference of paying higher salaries for for individuals as well, so this is not this yeah. problem is not going away. That's um, right. Mm -hmm. And and um, you know 
we we talk about economic uh, impact at a at a consumer level and and CPI and so forth, but let's not forget that consumption is a major element of economic growth. Um, yeah. And this is why, when we talk about population growth shrinking, yeah. it's a, it's a, a major problem for the Chinese economy moving forward. Um, the the one child policy because they don't have all those consumers in the middle class getting more affluent and and consuming. There's a there's a logical limit to that, and there's an argument that. The U.S. with its immigration policy, you know, over the last uh, you know hundred years or so, has really um, stimulated consumption by importing buyers into the economy, and that's a that's a key element. So, uh, a consumption at a discretionary and non-discretionary basis is very important, um, you know, for the health of an economy. And when you have um, you, know, you don't have that wage growth in terms of spending dollars and you get the spending crunch on both ends of it coming, then that's going to have a deleterious effect to the economy over time. You know, I, absolutely. If, if you thought about the birth rate in the US, if you look at where we're at today, we're now below the replacement level. So without immigration over the next decade, we'll have fewer people. Right. And yeah, if you we've just do- topic quite a bit on the show. It's actually across the entire Northern Hemisphere. Hmm. Um, yeah, no population in the Northern Hemisphere is above replacement rate at this point. They're all hovering below two, uh, two children per couple. That's a real problem uh, for the long-term growth of the economy and for Social Security. Uh, Casey, let me let me roll back to something that you said because I think it's an important distinction that we uh, we didn't get to cover. Uh, just building on what Brett was talking about, you know, we've we've now seen two big factors in the economy that go back many decades. One is uh, what what uh, what Brett was referring to, which is the stagnation of real income or real wages. That's a that's been a gigantic issue uh, for working people. But at the same time, there's been this steady increase and rather a spectacular increase in certain categories. And the categories that are growing are those that are services, uh, particularly services that require a lot of people, education, college, uh, healthcare. Um, and uh, and that's put a real squeeze on, on household budgets. Those two factors put a squeeze on household budgets. So manufacturers of consumer goods, they're smart. They see this trend. They understand they've pivoted and they've found ways to squeeze out costs. And so the cost of things, of stuff, material goods, that's dropped, right? We we can actually say there's been, like you talked about, a deflationary pressure there. Yeah. Um, in a way, that's necessity, right? Because otherwise people would stop buying stuff. We also notice that in the quality of the products that we buy, because a lot of products, uh, you know, as they squeeze out costs, they're actually literally squeezing out material. Uh, the weight of packages has decreased, for instance, over the last 25 years significantly. Uh, is that part of what you analyze when you look at the consumer industry, those kinds of factors? Yeah, w- without a doubt. So okay. we, we we went out through a process and really tried to figure out what are all the things we need to pay attention to, which was a really you know uh, extensive and difficult process. But through that process, we we surfaced um, well over a hundred distinct things that that we thought we needed to pay attention to, mm-hmm. and you know every topic that we've raised so far. Uh, on on the on this conversation um, have been topics that without a doubt were part of what were were raised through that conversation. So we're we're trying to study all of those, continually monitor those, and then more importantly is understand what they mean and what happens when they converge. Okay, let's dig a little deeper into that because methodology is a topic that we love to get into in the show, particularly in the beginning of the show. Uh, so you're a futurist, you're working for this global consulting firm, and you're looking at the future of the of the consumer industry. Now, some of what you've done is you've taken a look at historical trends. 
And I fully agree with that. You can't forecast unless you understand the the long-term trajectory of where we're coming from. So that makes a good deal of sense. Uh, You're also looking at multiple factors. You mentioned 100 different factors. But you've also created a kind of a formulation. Um, You've got these six factors that you zero in on. Can you tell us a little bit about the six factors that define the future? Yeah, sure thing. And, And by the way, with the six factors were more of an organizing construct that we applied after we surfaced the hundred or so things. Mm. So the first effort was just to really, um, I sometimes refer to it as like shake the bushes. Let's see what all falls out. Let's see all the topics that, um, you know, and, and I'll talk about sort of the broad group that we pulled together. But the question was, what all do we have to care about? Now, as we did that, 100 or so things becomes almost overwhelming, but then we started playing the game of how do you organize them and which things are like each other, et cetera. And ultimately, we came up with what we call the six forces shaping the future of the consumer industry. Mm-hmm. Now, those forces are the, the first one is really about a changing consumer. And so for us, if you look at the consumer, it's demographics the changing demographics, it's sexuality and gender identity, it's economics, it's geography, uh, you know, it's um, wealth and wealth disparity, income disparity, you know, all those elements that sort of make up those dimensions of the consumer. That's the first one. The second one is really society and culture, because that consumer, who they are, is defined by how they relate to a broader culture, how they relate to neighbors, how they form groups, and how those groups help define who they are, and frankly, what's important to them in terms of spending. So a lot of what we do as, as consumers you know, relates to us trying to represent or participate in society and culture. The third component is really we, it's really technology, but we call it X-Tech. Now, this is our own term that we've come up with that really tries to convey a broader collection of technologies than just infotech. We're trying to convey specifically for our consumer clients that think deeply about infotech a lot, that when we say the word technology, we're also talking about biotech and material science and advances in space and and other technologies that are increasingly converging and becoming important for our industry to understand and talk about. The fourth element is uh, industry upheaval. And it's really a specific view of what are the things happening with the industry, some of which are financial. So for example, consumer spending over the last decade grew about 3.6% CAGR. However, many consumer companies would love to have a 3.6% growth CAGR during the same period. So Mm -hmm. why are companies not performing at the rate of consumer spending, and there's some reasons behind that. But you also have declining barriers to entry, fragmentation of market share. There's a lot happening when you just analyze the industry that's actually mm-hmm. really causing significant upheaval. Of course, all of this operates you know, within the context of an extreme climate and planet. Of course, consumer in- the consumer and consumer industry, as I've defined it, you know, produces 60% of all the greenhouse gases. So that begins to tell you the role that this industry must play. And, you know, in many ways, you'll know this is that we're on a dire trajectory now. Yeah. But when you when you recognize that we've got about 3.9 billion consumers globally today, and we're going to add another 2 billion mm. over the next decade, this idea of what role our um, industry must play as it pertains to the planet becomes much more um, emphasized. Well, I I want to drill down onto that. So tell me, I'll let you finish your thought. Uh, All right, just just one more category of the six. It's shifting economics, it's policy, 
It's power and politics. And of course, that's a broad collection of things, but they're the things that you know are defining the rules, the behaviors, the economics of, of how we're operating as a broader economy, um, what we're trying to incent, where we're finding, uh, you know, changing policies that would be the wrappers around the industry. So there's a lot mm -hmm. in that category, but those are the six categories uh, that, that we came up with for the hundred or so topics. Okay, cool. We're going to have questions, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There. There's plenty, uh, but, there's plenty there just, to go into. Let's just briefly recap for the people who are listening. So uh, there's six factors. One is the changing consumer. The second one is an evolving society. The third one is exponential technology. Uh, then the fourth is radical industrial uh, industry upheaval, uh, radical change coming to, to industries. And then the fifth is radical climate change. Yep. And then finally, the last one is the policies that govern the allocation of resources. So you could say government and politics and so on. That's just a quick recap. Now, Brett, I know you're chomping at the bit to jump in there. So don't let me <laughs> yeah. stop you. Let's Fire do away. it. Well, so so I, I think um, what's interesting about this, if, if you look at a number of these, um, obviously there's consumer pressures and there's trends, you know, technologies change behavior. Look at the smartphone, mm -hmm. look at social media, obviously. But on a broader basis, um, you know, when it comes to actually reshaping industry, it's almost as if, you know, uh, th and this is what I argue in, in techno-socialism in the book, um, is it's almost a philosophical um, fork in the road because um, extreme climate change in, in particular, but also the fact that technology is going to upheave a lot of these industries. Look at healthcare, going to be yep. you know, biotech, gene therapy, you know, better sensor technologies, all of these sort of things. All of the old skill sets of the industrial revolution essentially evaporate. So you have entirely new basis of sort of um, value creation at a market level, but at the same time, you have the the need for corporations and industry to be net social positive rather than just using resources to create profits. And That's right. you know, it doesn't matter if we pollute the earth and you know and and kill people because of pollution or whatever. Um, so you you have this sort of almost a renaissance. Um, you know, I would call it um, in in terms of where corporations fit into the world in respect to their their broader social mission. Do do you think that that is an outcome for this, or will capitalism win out? You know, in in respect to it doesn't matter as long as you're still making profits. Because how how well has that worked for us today with yeah. climate change, right? Yeah, no, no, we're, we're, we're pushing on the idea. So I agree with you completely that, that we, we have to get corporations to recognize that the role that they have to play in this renaissance, this change that's before us uh, is significantly different than where we've come from. You know, you'll hear us uh, and we've done our report that we call buying into better. And buying into better is really trying to encapsulate that idea for the consumer industry. We have to traverse the complexity that's before us, but we also have to make choices that uh, impact society, uh, you know, our consumer base, our neighbors. We have to play a different role than our industry has played historically. That's one of the big outcomes that comes out of the study that we've done. And in some respects, industry is uh, on defense because the consumer is changing. The consumer is empowered. The consumer is able to make decisions. Uh, you know, like today, the the 3.9 billion people you mentioned, they all have a smartphone in their pocket. So they're, they've got abundant choices. They can be shopping in another online store, even while they're inside yeah. of a retail shop. 
this is unprecedented territory for retailers and for the consumer goods business. Uh, we're going to get into that in the second half. Yeah. But I think what we should probably do now is um, we like to do this uh, special procedure with our guests. <laughs> um, and it's going to be Brett that administers the procedure this time. It's our rapid fire round. We're going to ask you a bunch of quick questions so that audience can get to know you a little bit better. Go for it, Brett. Okay, here is the lightning round. What was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on uh, TV, books, film? So as you asked the question, I remember Land of the Lost uh, TV oh, yeah. show when I was young that, uh, you know, really was interesting and, and caught my attention. Reminds me a lot of that time tunnel. Remember the time tunnel? When the, yeah. yeah that, was, that was funny. Um, what technology has most changed humanity to date, do you think? It's got to be the connectivity, the connectivity uh, that we've that we achieve through Internet connection. So just broadly, the, the connectivity of information, the flow of information. Very cool. So you call yourself a futurist, but um, can you name a futurist or an entrepreneur that really influenced you in your career? Uh, so I, I, I follow Ray, Ray Kurzweil. Um, and I think, you know, my introduction to him and his you know thinking through singularity university um probably prompted me to really start digging deeper into a broader set of understanding of trends and we've had a few singularity you um practical people on like rames and, and others um in terms of uh, the forecasting element what do you think is the best prediction or best forecast a entrepreneur or a futurist or a sci-fi practitioner has ever made? I don't know. I, I don't know that I have an answer to that. I don't know that there's a, for, in fact, I, I focus a lot on bad forecasts because I'm trying to learn as much from when bad forecasts were made as I am trying to figure out what forecasts are the right ones. There's a lot more bad forecasts out there. So you have no shortage yeah. of examples. Yeah, yeah. All right. So last one. Is there a science fiction story that is representative of the future you hope for? So there's a book that came out last year called AI 2041. Oh, yeah, uh, with uh, Kai-Fu Lee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think within that, there are some great stories. I love what they did is brought together science fiction with, you know, actual people that are in the industry that are tracking with technology. I think there's some really great stories in that that begin to paint a profound picture of the potential. Of course, some of the stories paint a picture of the dystopian possibilities, yeah. but you know, within that are some real utopian um, outcomes that are possible. Yeah, I tried that in Augmented, actually, with my book in 2015. Mm -hmm. I told three stories at the end about you know, like science fiction stories embedded in, in the book, short stories. So um, I think it's a good technique, you know, it works. I mean, yeah. think about the the Motorola flip phone, right? You know, and, and uh, you know, and, and it's influenced by the Star Trek communicator, right? And one of the things I've noticed in doing uh, scenario planning with, with client companies is after you, after you get a, a certain distance out into the future, say five years or more, it's all storytelling. 
And once you get out to like a 10 year horizon, it's science fiction at that point, because you're taking trends that you're aware of. You're going to try to extrapolate. You can't do a linear extrapolation because it never works that way. I I call my futurism short term sci-fi. Yeah, for that reason. I think that makes a good deal of sense. All right. Well, that has been a fun round. Uh, Thanks, Casey, for answering those questions. We're going to take a short break, but folks, don't go far because we're going to be right back with Casey Loba in part two. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spinoff podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. Uh, I'm your host, Brett King, with uh, Rob Tursek in the hosting seat uh, and our guest this week, Casey Aloba. Um Casey, um, you know, in in terms of um, constructing this sort of research and so forth, um, you know, h- how do you how do you come up with the thesis behind this? In terms of you know, as a futurist, what's going to add value from a corporate perspective? So as we set out, as I mentioned before, I was I was worried about making predictions. I was worried. Uh, because there's so many bad predictions, you know, that really found their way into our industry, into the conventional wisdom. So the first thing I thought about was, well, how will we go about it in a way that isn't just me sitting in a room prophesizing? Uh, and the way, the way I thought about it was to think about the process. Uh, if you believe in the process, you believe in the outcome. So we set out to really define a robust process with great input, diverse input. So at this point, we've interviewed and involved in workshops over 800 people. Uh, Those are certainly people from across the industry that have expertise in the various sectors that make up the industry, many people within Deloitte, but we also interviewed a whole collection of clients. We talked with every major industry group that makes up the industry. I went to academia. We talked with institutes that study the future. We talked with places like uh, we had MIT Media Lab spend a day with them. Wall Street analysts, um, economists, sociologists. We just tried to be really robust. We also talked, we had a group of the youngest people at Deloitte, you know, our youngest professionals. We engaged them in a conversation. Uh, And then we also have uh, a consumer tracker where we survey consumers every month across 20 different countries. That was also an input. So what we tried to do is really make sure that we had a holistic view. And of course, you'll know this, is that no one person amongst that group had the complete view of all the things that were going on that mattered. So it was only because we were able to convene such a great, great group, could we have a really broad view of what were the forces that are coming together. So you took diverse inputs, uh, both demographically, in terms of age uh, and and, um, and geographically, but also from a number of different businesses, right? So when you say That's consumer right. industry, you're talking about everything from food and fashion and apparel to consumer electronics and consumer goods. Uh, so that's pretty broad as well. So that's you're right. getting diverse inputs, but I imagine you end up with this kind of scattering of snapshots. How do you then unify that into a cohesive whole? 
Yeah, you're right. That was the first part, which was a bit mind bending to to have the complexity and the sheer amount of information that we brought together. And then it was a, a bit of an organizing effort, which of these things are like each other, which of these conflict with each other, because of course, one person would say things are going left, another person would say things yeah. are going right. And then we actually set out to do the research uh, within Deloitte. Luckily, I have enough resources to convene a team and set out, uh, set about um, the, the research on each of the topics that came up. As we did that, they started to form into the six categories that we shared earlier. And yeah. now we've got the platform of information. And really, we're establishing the processes now to keep it evergreen and make sure that we're staying on top of the okay. changing. And what did you learn in, in the process? What were the findings or let's say the implications? Yeah. So, we, you know, the first step was the six forces. But at that point, all we've said is, man, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And really what our clients want to know is, yeah, but what does it mean to us? Right. And so then we set out with trying to think about how do you work your way through the implications? And imagine for a minute, what does this mean for both airlines and for fast food? And those were the, that was the challenge, right? So we we developed a model that we call the 3M model uh, for the industry. So the 3Ms would be markets. What does it mean for markets? And for that, you know, what is being sold? You know, who's buying it? How are we selling it? How is it changing? How are value propositions changing? The second M is models. So think business models. You know, mm -hmm. how are we organizing ourselves as business units? How are we sourcing capabilities? How are ecosystems changing by which we operate? And then the third is mechanics. And it's really, how do we run our business? What role does labor play? How are we changing the granularity of execution that we're having to execute at? You know, how do we think about the financial mechanics of how we generate profitability? Those are all the things that sort of fall under each of those. Such a consulting way to... Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Well, you need a methodology. It's fun for yeah, us true. to like, <laughs> dissect the methodology. But even as you're saying those things, I'm starting to you know, relate the, the three M's that you mentioned back to your six different um, factors that are going to cause change. You know, so, for instance, in mechanics, we can think about automation and we can think about robotics and artificial intelligence changing the way a business operates, right? That's but right. in terms of models, you can see there's a big shift now that's, that's been underway for some time from selling a single unit to selling either bulk or subscription, right? So that's, uh, you're starting to see subscription to dog food, you know, uh, just about anything you you might buy on a regular basis is available on a subscription basis now from Amazon. So that's, that's not necessarily new, but that's certainly a big trend. So is that the kind of methodology you're talking about, just to give it some specific? Yeah, w without a doubt. But let me add a couple of additional colors because the things you hit on are right. Uh, under mechanics, we also talk a lot about workforce extremes, where there's some component of the workforce that's in high demand, and there's another portion of the workforce that's at risk of being created redundancy. Ooh, big topic it. there. Right. Yeah, go into that. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So if, if you look at the estimates, right, we've got roughly 190 million jobs in the United States and somewhere yeah. between, depending on who you look to, between 40 and 70 million of those jobs are at risk of being automated away in the next decade. Yeah. So, you know, as you dig into that, you have to ask yourself, not only what does it mean for our workforce, but the workforce is also the consumer base. So we know for a healthy consumer industry, we need a healthy consumer, a healthy consumer base. Uh, and you have to begin to recognize what does it potentially mean for the changing workforce dynamics. And that's- Yeah, this is the original Henry Ford insight that if you pay your workers a reasonable wage, they can afford to buy your product, right? And that's that right. was 
Yeah, at the time, he was considered almost socialistic, right? People were outraged that he was paying his workers so much, but he managed to get the best workers, so it paid off for him. That's right. Um, so now that's we an have business, businesses going the opposite direction, where you know the current hoopla around artificial intelligence is, I think it's a somewhat overhyped in the near term, but long-term implications are clear. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Workers are going to get displaced, right? I think that's that's an inevitable conclusion as you think through the the possibilities for applied artificial intelligence. Yeah, I heard Gary V had a good illustration of this the other day. I don't know if you heard it, Rob, but he said um, AI is the tractor. You know, if you look at um, farming and agriculture in the United States, prior to the Industrial Revolution, 75% of workers worked in the farming agriculture sector. Today, it's 1.3%, right? Yeah. And so that's happened because of, of the tractor. Um, but, um, you know, and AI is the new tractor. But the, the, the question mark is, where are all the new jobs going to come from? you know, when AI yeah. disrupts. Um, and that's a social question. It's not a employment labor force question. It's it's sort of the role of work in society is sort of redefined yeah. by AI. Well, yeah. it's, a, it's a great debate. Yeah. And, and that debate always comes up through conversation. Uh, but if you break down what roles do humans play in, in the workforce, it's really one of three. Your first is physical. We're doing physical work, like working on a manufacturing line. Second is we're doing cognitive work, making decisions like buying decisions, et cetera. Uh, and then the third would be creative work. Now, the idea would be that, okay, historically, every time we automate away work, we create new jobs. Now, the question is, what are those new jobs going to be, to your question? Uh, and can technology displace those jobs? So we clearly are seeing cognitive uh, with some of the uh, you know AI examples that exist in the marketplace. But we're also seeing creative, right, with right. generative AI. And what I'm I'm questioning, and it's just part of this debate, is okay, at least historically, there's always been a category of jobs that couldn't be automated and we elevated to those jobs. But I'm not sure as we sit here today that there's a category of, of those three categories that, that can't be affected by technology. No, but that's the point is we're, try, we're designing, we are seeking to build AI that could disrupt all of those, right? Artificial general intelligence. That, and know. the key thing is simultaneously, yeah. right? So it's right, not sequential. Right. Yeah. And so there's no place to go in the, in the short run. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I would also add Across that- Across every industry simultaneously, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And robotics destroys entire job categories and mm-hmm. it does it simultaneously across industries. So for instance, um, you know, just about every, um, just about every grocery store, drugstore and hardware shop now has automated checkout counters, right? Not not 100%, but but the bulk of the checkout areas are now self-service and automated. Um, so that eliminates the job of the clerk who does the scanning and the, you know, runs the cash register. But the problem is that person can't go across the street when their job's destroyed because mm-hmm. right. the company across the street for competitive reasons had to adopt the same technology. And so the category's gone, that's new. That's kind of new and that's a little bit scary. But Brett, the thing that bothers me the most about this scenario, the thing that troubles me the most, I think, is AI is taking jobs that haven't even been invented yet. Right. So yeah. the, you know, the really creative application of artificial intelligence is to apply it to things that humans don't yet do. Mm-hmm. But then that closes an avenue for the future, right? So you're, you can imagine easily that in the three categories you mentioned, Casey, physical work that's being replaced by automation and machines and eventually robotics that's been underway for a couple hundred years, cognitive work that's being replaced by artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, and then creative work, the new generative AIs certainly represent a a pretty significant threat, even in their kind of infant stage. I think they still are kind of an infant stage. 
but the potential is quite clear, right? So where do we go next? Well, the, the things you might do next, those are already being cornered by artificial intelligence. That's where the scenario gets scary. There's no, there's no next place to go to. Challenge me if I'm wrong, because I really do want to hear a counter to that. This, as I mentioned, this is the debate. My mind always goes where you went. However, the historic record would say, no, no, every time we've automated jobs, we've created new ones. Yeah. And the question is, is this like it's always been or is something different now? My own instinct tells me something is different. Well, we know we know it's different because we've never had the technology to replicate what a human does. Right. You know, from, from so that that's the the difference is that humans are interchangeable with an algorithm or a robot now that that's never been the case before. So anything you can train a human to do, you'll be able to train an algorithm or a robot to do in the future. So then the question is, well, if you can train an algorithm or AI to do anything a human can do, how can a human differentiate? And the answer is we can't. So this leads to, you know, then then whether you employ an AI or whether you employ a human is purely an economic decision in today's terms. And that's the key problem. The key problem is that we are and we don't have an economic system that will value human workers over machines. And and to be fair, um, you know, like you know, whenever we think about science fiction and these utopian futures, we have have always modeled that on the basis of eliminating work that is me- menial, you know, and getting you to things that are really truly interesting and and uh, you know, um, it, you know, because it sort of advanced the spe- species, you know, art and you know, science, etc. But um, you know, it's it's. It, it's a really interesting question because I think ultimately, you know, we're getting to that point where, um, you know, we we disrupt the role of humans in society. And you know, if you if you're trying to tie that into, you know, economic performance of the economy and and labor participation and all of that, all of those rules get broken by this. Brett, yeah. Brett let me let me build with some of our industry specific insights on this because not only is it talking, not only are we talking about you know, machines doing what humans can do. If you look at the industry, the in- industry is evolving in a way that there's things that need to be done that you can't actually use humans right. to do. Right. So, uh, Robert, you mentioned this earlier, this, you know, explosion of optionality. You know, we like to say the market has shifted from being supply driven, the consumer industry, to being really demand driven, meaning the consumer has more options and therefore they're making choices that are are not constrained by the availability of supply. And that means that the market is shifting from supply driven to demand driven. We use the term moving from mass to micro. Right. The industry was built for mass production, mass distribution, mass marketing. And however, you know, that's how companies are built. Those are requirements we built for. We're moving to more of a a micro segmentation of the market. And the problem is, is that if you try and apply humans to this level of granularity of decision making, let me use just a quick example to highlight this. You know, if you go into most of your favorite retailers in Omaha, Nebraska, or in Dallas, Texas, or you know, Florida, you're, what you're going to find is they're generally the same. However, they're moving rapidly away from that. Let's call this hyper-localized assortment to say mm-hmm. the store in North Kansas City and South Kansas City have very different consumers. Demographics are really fragmenting, uh, needs, wants, desires, et cetera. So therefore, in order to compete with this market that has more options, you have to become hyper-relevant. 
Wow. Now, how does a national chain deal with that? Like, how yeah, does the, it the problem is, is that the traditional way is you have a merchant who's planning the assortment. But if yeah. you now have 1500 stores, you have 1500 assortments to plan and predict. And it's possible with data for sure. We've proven yeah. it's possible, um, but it's not possible to have 1500 humans with 1500 spreadsheets, um, you know, managing um, that level of complexity. So it's not just a matter of, hey, can humans do it? It's actually no, the requirements of what needs to be done are changing. And you can only do that through a different approach utilizing technology. So it's not a simple replacement. It's an evolution to where the requirements are so complex that you can't do it the old way. That makes sense. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Let me let me let me offer a, an alternative scenario, and I don't know if this sure. fits, but this is what's on my mind when I hear you talk about that. So certainly, as I looked at the report, I get your point about the proliferation of diverse choices and optionality, and in a way that like speaks to what we all experience when we go on Amazon: cognitive overload, right? So I use Amazon because it's fun to fun to pick on Amazon. Um, you know, the 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 UI there. If you're searching for just a generic product. Uh, you're going to end up with 10,000 choices, many of them coming, many of them look identical, and many of them are coming from obscure companies that you've never heard from and so forth. So for the consumer, this is a feeling of cognitive overload. Um, sure. And and one one reaction to that that I've noticed is consumers go on strike. They just say, I'm going to buy less stuff. Partly that's a reaction to the fact that wage growth has been stagnating for many years. Uh, that cost of other things have gone up, that it's absorbing on my budget and so on. Uh, what happens when buyers go on strike? And if, if AI is going to really displace a lot of workers, you're going to see many people who were formerly consumers who are now no well, longer able to I purchase. mean, this is the whole argument be, for u- universal basic income is, is we keep people consuming, right? But yeah, but that's in itself a problem, times. right? Yeah, who pays for it, right? There's no Boy, way that's to- a can of worms right there. <laughs> oh my God. Like, it's like, that is the most utopian scenario I've ever heard. But but look, you but know- As but- an alternative to, you know, 60% unemployment, it's a reasonable um, position, right? Sure, it, it's it's reasonable. If you start to do the math on even giving a, a, a small stipend, like $2,000 a month, you get into trillions of dollars just in the United States alone. Sure. Any other nation, by the way, the economic get worse. It's much harder to do. $2,000 a month is not enough to support a person uh, right now in a major city in the United States. But the cost of that uh, per capita, if you multiply it across the whole population of the U.S., is close to $8 trillion a year. And that's more than the United States government takes in in taxes right now. And already Americans are overtaxed, right? So like half the population here is like, would go into insurrection if you tried to raise taxes. I just don't see how you can tax it. Well, so so either, either you have to ban AI so humans keep working or you have to have UBI and you have to figure out how to pay for it. I mean, that's the binary option, right? What's what's the alternative? Yeah, so for the people who want to keep working, the implication is clear. You got to master working with the machines and you've got to upskill and stay ahead. And by the way, not easy, not an easy thing to do. Uh, I've been investigating prompt craft here, partly because my social media crowd has been hassling me to get better at prompt craft. So I'm like, I'm feeling the social heat to get on top of it. And, uh, you know, it's it's necessary to keep your blades sharp. You got to keep practicing. You got to stay in order to stay relevant. I'm not sure that every worker feels that way, though. I think there's quite a lot of people in the workforce who are like, I'm not going to upskill. And that's like a choice to become obsolete. This is a really scary scenario, right? And Brett, it reminds me of uh, a diagram from your book, uh, Technosocialism, where you gave four scenarios. 
Right. You know, Thank one you. is Luddistan, another one is neo-feudalism, another one is Faldistan, and then techno-socialism ultimately is in the top right corner of that diagram, which is, you know, we've been conditioned to believe that's always the optimal corner to be in. Uh, <laughs> share with us a little bit about that. And I want to hear Casey's perspective as we kind of steer to a conclusion, uh, sure. what the implications are here. Because I think what we've done, Casey, is we've discovered that while you have a really interesting report, uh, once you start to unpack the implications of that report, and we barely began to do yeah, that in this barely. episode, you start to open up a series of cans of worms. And it's like, wow, that's a nasty scenario. And, and we don't need to push this scenario further than we've already done it. But I would love to hear Brett just recap those four scenarios briefly. And then I'd love to get Casey's reaction to each. Sure. So um, this is how we modeled future um, socio-political economic uh, organizing principles, right? Two basic axes. Um, one is individual over collective. So, um, it, you know, if you look at the European economies, they tend to be more collectively oriented, whereas the US tends to place more emphasis on individual rights, right? So individual rights versus collective rights. And then on the other axis, it's um, chaotic futures versus planned futures. So, um, you know, like the Great Reset, you know, type uh, principles you know, where we're planning for the future and we're mapping this out over many decades versus, you know, we'll just, you know, free market, we'll see what happens, right? So that's the four quadrants. So in the uh, in the collective uh, chaotic, you have the ladder stand scenario. This is where we ban, um, ban AI specifically because of the effect it's having on unemployment and we can't figure out how to pay for UBI. So the only way to stop um, machines taking jobs is to ban them from taking jobs. Um, that's a fairly small percentage in terms of likelihood. Then you've got the individual chaotic, which is the Faldistan, where individually focused uh, economies don't really focus on collective solutions, and so they leave it too late. You know, for th for things like response to climate change and so forth, and it and it produces uh, basically systemic collapse. On the so Faldistan is the United States is what you're describing. Well, so but. So Faldistan, it could be the outcome, but more likely in the United States is going to be what we call neo-feudalism, which is the collective plan where you have the wealthy elite sort of trying to construct a society where you have this permanent stratification of the landlord class or the feudal class. You have the poor versus the rich and the rich get, you know, longevity treatments and have access to all the best stuff, you know, but if you can't afford to be in that group, then you're, you're left to your own devices. So the Elysium sort of sci-fi future. But the, you know, we argue the optimal form of humanity, one that focuses on the the, the outcome for the species-wide, is techno-socialism, using technology to reduce the cost of government and, you know, produce a better quality of life for all, right? So they're the four scenarios that um, that we, we've we put in the book. So I'd love to hear, Casey, what your thoughts are in terms of the likely outcomes of those. Yeah, Brett, I, I look at all of those and say they're all possible outcomes. Uh, you know, in particular, correct. you know, in particular, if you sort of think about where we're heading currently in the United States, you'd look at neo-feudalism and you'd say that feels like the direction we're heading. But part of what we took on this effort for was to establish an understanding of the possibilities and the forces, but more importantly, is like surface the choices, because this isn't fait accompli that we that we uh, end up somewhere. We actually will end up at the place that we, that our collective choices take us. 
And if you don't understand our having the conversation, right? Yeah. If you don't have, if we don't understand the forces and what those choices are, then yes, you will end up wherever we end up. We want, you know, our firm wants, I passionately want to be part of helping to understand the choices that we have to make, to pick the place that we play. Like, what is the future that we desire? And what do we have to do collectively? And if you stop and think about the agency that we have collectively, I mean, Deloitte is a massive organization where I'm proud of the influence that we have. But frankly, the number of people that we have, the number of people that you reach via this podcast, collectively, we have a ton of we have so much agency and we have to employ that agency to help us get to the place we want to get to the future that we want uh, our outcome, you know, and that's why we've taken this effort. We call it buying in the better. And we're, we're, you know, as focused on ourselves and what do we, what's the role that we as a firm have to play uh, in creating that future as we are in trying to help our clients to also understand the role that they need to play. So then the quest, the obvious question is um, how do we guarantee a more collective outcome versus uh, arguing over whether our tribe or you know our our you know economic group wins. No, I think I think that's right. Is to understand what are the limitations we have of making the right collective decisions today, and how do we begin to address uh, the shared outcomes? And those, it's not easy. I can't just give you an answer that says here's how you do it, but it certainly takes collaboration. It takes participation by governments. It takes uh, you know investment by you know global corporations that that have connective tissue globally, um, and it takes real concerted effort to align the outcomes you know, with the uh, decision-making that, you know, drives those outcomes. I think it takes better incentives, frankly. I think the market incentives are, you know, what we describe as perverse incentives economically. But anyway, uh, that's great, Casey. Thanks for joining us, man. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. As As you hear, there's so much to talk about. Yeah, that's true. We barely got into it. Casey, it was great seeing you today. Thanks for joining us. Nice seeing you, Robert. Casey, just uh, quickly before we go, where can people get in touch with you? Find out more about the report? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Casey Loba. You can follow me on uh, Twitter or you at, at K-L-O-B-A-U-G-H or just Google buying into better Deloitte and you'll find us. Fantastic. So um, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. That's it for the show this week, guys. If uh, if you uh, enjoy the show, make sure you tweet it out, uh, share it with your friends. Uh, you know, it's how people find out about the show. Or leave us a five star rating. It all helps uh, raise visibility. Um, we have a phenomenal uh, um, uh, traction on the show right now, so appreciate all of that. And um, you know, uh, if you've got some ideas for future shows, please jump in and let us know what you think, um, who you'd like to hear us interview, and what you what topics you'd like us to cover. Um, maybe we'll get into the whole uh, UAP UFO thing because that's uh, getting a lot more attention uh, these days. But anyway, so that's it for the show this week. Uh, until next week, uh, we will see you in the future. Well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.